Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. This sermon was delivered live at our West Conway campus. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, you can go, if you, if you start in the middle of your Bible and you start going towards the right, do so slowly. It is a very small book, and so it'll be easy to, uh, to kind of skim past it. We're, we're going to be in the second chapter. As you're turning there, I want to I challenge you to put your minds back when you were younger. And maybe you went over to a friend's house, a new friend, or a friend came over to your house and either you or they were shocked by, uh, you know, sort of like what gets you in trouble in this house and what doesn't get you in trouble in that house. Has that ever happened? Like, like your friends got away with a lot of stuff that you did not get away with, you know, that sort of thing. I, I've had friends in the past go over to their house, that sort of stuff. And um, I knew one friend in particular that his parents were cool if, if he cussed a little, like in front of them. They, they, just, they just didn't have a problem with that. But if he showed up after curfew, he would lose his life, all right? That was just, that was their line in the sand, you know, that sort of stuff. I, I've known parents who, as long as you get straight A's, you know, everything's good, everything's kosher. I, I knew one girl who she could get straight A's and, and as long as she had straight A's, if she were to forge her parents' names on a document, they didn't care as long as she had straight A's. It was just, it was just bizarro, okay? It was just like not a world that I was familiar with, that sort of thing. Growing up in my house, uh, the house I grew up in, uh, lying or talking back, would you might as well just go ahead and dig your own grave. The, the, those things will get you uh, murdered, all right? You do not talk back and you do not tell a lie. It is not good in our house. And so I'm sure there are things in your home, maybe now as a parent, or maybe back then you can remember that. You can remember things that your friends got and you're just like, that's so weird, you know, that kind of thing. Amos chapter one and two, God lets the nations know around Israel and particularly Israel. He says, you have gone too far. You've gone too far. You have broken a rule. You have broken a big rule. Turns out that God is gonna list these things out through his prophet Amos. So we're going to spend about four weeks here talking about the prophet Amos. This story happens about 20 years before the fall of the northern kingdom. So all summer long, we've been looking at the books called Kings. We had two seasons, remember that? Season one, season two of Kings and Kingdoms. And there toward the end, both the northern kingdom of, of uh, Judah or Israel rather, of Israel with the capital city of Samaria, it fell to the Assyrians, all right? And then right there at the end, the southern kingdom of Judah with its capital city in Jerusalem, it fell to the Babylonians. Y'all remember all this kind of piecing it together? Well, Amos is a, is a shepherd from the southern kingdom. God puts on his heart a message to the northern kingdom. So you got to back up quite a bit from where we've already covered. You got to back up in our timeline there a little bit. And he goes across the border. He goes up into um, Israel and he speaks against those people there. The story starts off and he's saying in chapter one, verse two, that the lion, a lion or God roars like a lion from Zion, which is that Southern kingdom there, that God has this roaring message, which is sort of where we got all the imagery of the lions um, for this series. God is going to declare a message against Israel. 
He does so, though, by beginning in a series of poems that begin there in chapter 2 against Damascus, and they're going to go against Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and then Judah, you know, the southern kingdom, and then eventually settles in there on Israel. And so even though he says, I'm going to talk about Israel, he starts by talking about these other nations. In chapter 2, verse 6 through 16, this is the poem that is declared towards Israel. This is sort of the heart of the message. And God is going to lay out some of the things that he says, these are the reasons I'm about to wipe out Israel. These are the reasons Israel is about to be disciplined or about to be in trouble. And the list includes things that you would not be shocked to find. There is sexual immorality, there is idolatry, and there is ignoring the prophet or the preaching of the word of God. And so those three things we would be like, yeah, I mean, of course, yeah. Those are the kind of things that God does not like. Those are the kind of things that when he tells people to do, if they should not do them, then he's going to be mad at it. What is interesting, at least to me, is the one that starts the list. The one that starts this list in this text is unusual, or at least for us would be out of place. I don't think that we would put it at the top of the list. I don't think that we think a lot about it. I don't think that we think that God speaks a lot about it. And we surely don't remember that Jesus spoke quite a bit about this topic. The issue at hand is that they were not caring for those who could not care for themselves. They were not caring for those who could not care for themselves. They were mistreating other people. They were mistreating the poor and the powerless, the disenfranchised and the disadvantaged. And so God is about to punish them. One of the interesting differences in the first several poems and this final poem against Israel is that the other ones seem to be in trouble because of the way that they are treating outsiders. But Israel was doing these mistreatments, was doing these wrong things towards their very own people. It's always wrong to mistreat people. It's particularly alarming when you're mistreating your own People. So let's read the text here. We're just going to read 6 and 7, uh, the first part of 7. 6 says, The Lord says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes and even four because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. Where I got was eventually in my studies this reminder that God is compassionate and that he challenges us to care for other people, that he is um, kind and gracious towards those who need it. To put it bluntly, God does care. He cares about other people and he cares about you. I was reminded this week through this text and I hope to remind you the same thing, that God cares about other people and that God has shown compassion toward you both physically and spiritually. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. But before we do, let's pray. You pray for me and I will pray for you. Let's pray. God, thank you for your words. God, I pray that today we would do, that we would be successful at this incredibly difficult task of not only seeing ourselves or or seeing outside of ourselves, but also God of seeing ourselves correctly. God, give us that sort of strength, that that insight, that wisdom that only you can do. God, it is not natural, normal for us to, to be concerned with that which doesn't concern us and to see ourselves accurately the way that you see us. God, as we try to do that today, give us the strength and may you be glorified in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. So looking back at the text here, God is 
using some poetic language. Like I said, it's poems. And so there's some things in there that, you know, I'm not sure that we immediately grasp. Overall, in six and seven, you can get it. We can understand it. We understand what it means. But there are some things that I would like to point out. Like, for instance, the first part there that says, I will not relent from punishing Israel for three crimes or even four crimes. And if you were to skim your eyes back in chapter one and two, you can see it, especially if your Bible is formatted in a way that all those poems are broken apart. You can see that that's the way that he starts all of these poems. He says, this is a message towards those people over there. And I'm not going to relent for three crimes, even four crimes. And he says that over and over and over again. But what does it mean? What's the meaning behind that? And what are the three or four crimes? In fact, the other difficulty in it is that in the chapter, in chapter one and at the beginning of chapter two, God says, oh, they're in trouble for doing three things, even four things. And then he lists one thing. All right. And so it's like, why is he only listing one thing? And then we get here to Israel and he lists out four things, unless you count in a different way than I count, which some people do. And there are eight things listed out in chapter uh, two, verse six through 16. So what is God doing? What, what is, well, this is a poetic ancient Near Eastern way of essentially saying they crossed the line. There's too much. They did too much. This is a bridge too far. This is the, this is the what is it called? Um, the straw that broke the camel's back. That's essentially what this kind of phrase means. Like, like they did a bunch of stuff and this is only, the, this is like the fourth thing, right? You know, now I'm not even gonna list the other three. I'll just tell you the fourth one, right? And if it is either counting three or four in the Israel poem, if it's counting seven, that's the number of completion. And so to list eight things, it's like, man, they went all the way and then some. That's what's going on in this text. So way across the line, over the top, the straw that broke the camel's back. Then what it looks like or what's happening here when it's talking about crimes, when it's talking about righteousness, when it talks about sandals, this is um, a, an insight into the way that they were mistreating other people. They were using the justice system in order to hurt other people. It wasn't any other realm, or there were probably other realms, but, but specifically what God is listing out here is the justice system. The sandal thing, uh, if you remember the Ruth story where Boaz redeems the land and he trades sandals, that sort of stuff. So there's, a, there's an idea that that's pro possibly what's going on in here. But the declaring of a righteous person, that's, we would use the language innocent person instead of righteous. Righteous sounds spiritual. This is an innocent person. So there's a use of the justice system. The justice system is supposed to, in all cultures, it's set up to protect those who are innocent and to protect the victim, right? That's the, that, that, that somebody bigger and stronger is gonna come in and make it right, right? That's what the justice system is for. However, they were using it to hurt the innocent and to hurt the victim, furthermore. So it's not only that they crossed the line, but they were using a system that God established to protect the victim, to hurt the victim. And then furthermore, it says that they trampled the heads of the poor in the dust, the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. God goes as far as saying that there, it's, it's not just that some people are using the justice system to hurt other people, but other people aren't helping and other people are just getting in the way. You know, like sometimes I think that we are content on this idea, and I'll talk about this in just a second, that it's like, well, I didn't do it. And, and then God would say, but then what are you doing to help it, right? So these three sort of observations arise from the text in which God clearly cares for those who cannot care for themselves. And he expects those who follow him to do the same. 
In fact, this is God's design that his people would care for others who are helpless in any given situation. What I call the poor and the powerless, you might call the the needy, or we might use the words disadvantaged or disenfranchised. That people that have a need that cannot meet it themselves would be helped by those who have the strength and the ability to meet that need. Now, before I go any further, this topic in our culture and in our world, I want to just kind of step out of the stream of the sermon and make a note, and then I'll step back in it and say something here in just a second. This topic in our current culture and in our world can really spin out of control. It has become almost entirely political. And before long, if you start talking about things like disadvantaged or, or the poor and the needy, then you're going to hear words like liberal and woke and CRT and left and right. And, and, and what I want to say is that even though those could be valid conversations to have, that is not where I'm going with this text at all. And I want to encourage you not to go there. You don't have to go there. We don't have to talk about those things. That maybe tomorrow or after today's service, you can step back into that conversation and use words that have meanings and you should use them correctly instead of just using them as insults, but understanding the concept and the idea. That when you step back into the conversation, that you would do so at least acknowledging what it is that the Bible says about that particular topic, all right? So I'm not saying that you shouldn't have those conversations. I'm just saying that we ain't having that conversation right now, okay? And I kind of want to disarm it in our minds because I think that that's the way that people start to go. And so here at the very beginning, let's just be much more concerned with what Scripture says about the topic or any topic before we try to engage those topics. So in this text, in Amos is not the only place that you see God's concern and teaching and emphasis on those who have needs. It's all over the Old Testament, all over. God created laws and systems and structures, systems meaning systemic. He created laws and ways in which people who had needs were provided for by the governing structure. That's how God established this in the Old Testament. He had specific laws for the Levites. Levites were a tribe of Israel that were not given any land. When they crossed into the promised land, God chopped up all the land and and through Joshua and Moses, God says, "Um, this part over here, that's for you, Judah. And this part over here, that's for you, Benjamin. And on and on through all the tribes, except for Levi. He didn't give them any land. And through the laws and through the structure and through the governing authorities, the Levites were to be provided for by the generosity and the law obeying people of the other areas. They didn't have land in order to grow food or to to ranch or to raise cattle or sheep. They were provided for through the systems that were there. God set up that. He also set up laws and ways to care for orphans, for widows, for the poor, for the immigrant, and for the refugee. Here's a few examples from the Bible that we can, under, that we can grasp. Exodus 22, 21 through 24 says, you must not exploit a resident alien or a refugee or an immigrant or oppose him since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. You must not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will no doubt cry to me and I will certainly hear them. Listen to what God says in this next verse. God is not joking. Verse 24, he says, my anger will burn and I will kill you with a sword and then your wives will be widows and your children fatherless. That's harsh. It's really harsh. 
And that's what God said. You remember the story about Ruth? Uh, the story about Ruth was a story about, I mean, you can summarize it any way you want to summarize it. Here's a summary. The story about Ruth was she was an immigrant, a refugee that went to, and a widow, and then she went back to Israel with her mother-in-law. And it was through the, the structure and the systems. There, there's all this language about the way that she was picking up. Um, she was gleaning from the fields. She was picking up things that the other harvesters were leaving behind. They were leaving that behind by the law. They, were, they had to leave that behind in order to care for the poor and the needy. That's the way that it worked. They weren't allowed to cut the corners out so that the poor and the needy could get those things. This refugee benefits from the system that was put in place to help the poor. And so by that system, by God's laws, by God's ordinance, God cares for David, King David. You remember him? King David's grandmama, all right? That's how God provides for that in Ruth. And it's that very same David that in Psalms 140 verse 12 says, I know that the Lord upholds the just cause of the poor. Justice for the needy. Isaiah 1 verse 17 says, learn to do what is good, pursue justice, correct the oppressor, defend the rights of the fatherless, plead the widow's case. This is what God expected his people to do. Orphans, immigrants, widows, the Levites, on and on. Here's a couple of important observations. There is language in here that is both active and passive. In other words, this is what I was talking about just a little bit earlier, that God wants us or God instructs us, don't harm, also do help. Also do help. That's important. I think a lot of us just are really comfortable in the area that says, yes, there is a problem over there or out there or with that or in there. We, we think there's a problem over in those things, but then we're comfortable sitting in a space that says, I'm not to blame for that. I have no responsibility in that. I'm not guilty of the problems that are happening in this case. And if you read scripture, what scripture says, God would say to you that's sitting there going, I didn't make the problem. God would say, good, don't make problems. I like that, so don't make problems. Also, by the way, God would say, do help with the problems. We have this weird thing that happens in our culture where we think that if we step up and help somebody else, we are somehow to blame for what, they, what, what happened in their circumstances or in their situation. Like somebody's gonna look at us like the guilt is on me. And so we wanna avoid the guilt so we don't help. And that's not what scripture teaches. Scripture doesn't ascribe guilt to the ones that are helping. If you didn't make the problem, awesome. But if you have the ability to help in the problem, or the situation or the challenge or the circumstances, then help. Then you are guilty for those things. The Bible says somewhere that he who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is a sin. And I just thought of that and I'm pretty sure that's in the Bible. It could be like a Aesop's fable or something like that, but I'm pretty sure it's in there. Sometimes the preacher doesn't know where the Bible verse is either. So don't harm and also do help. And then the other thing it says, uh, or that I wanna make sure is that God is active in this. It's not just that God says these things. God is active. It says it in the Genesis, uh, the Exodus account that we just read, Exodus 22, and then also here in Amos in verse 10 or 11, right in that ballpark, God is saying, look, you need to care for people because I cared for you. Help the needy people because you have been needy. Help the hungry because you have been hungry and I gave you food. 
Help those who are thirsty because you have been thirsty and I give you water. That's what God says. He kind of builds it on that. In other words, the entire Israeli history is God acting for the small. You can see that theme throughout all of the Old Testament. That Israel, you were least, you were smallest, you were the, you were the baby and I helped you. So how much more would you help others? that are fatherless or widowed and that sort of stuff. So God cares for physically helpless and he expects us to do the same. But the question really arises, at least in my mind, why? Why does God care for other people? I think if we are just like, to be honest with you, I think the way that I would answer that before studying it is just like, I don't know, it's just the way he is. God does stuff like this, right? God, God, is, God does stuff. He makes stuff just by saying it. He helps poor people. And, and then he speaks in ways that are kind of hard to understand. It's just the way he is. And, and we like him, you know? That's kind of the way we would, we would chalk it up to his personality. And when we do that, because it's God's personality, we kind of think to ourselves, well, it's not my personality, right? God's into that sort of stuff. I'm into other stuff. It's good stuff. It's helpful stuff, but I'm just, I'm just not all about caring for the poor, the powerless, the disenfranchised, and the disadvantaged. That's just not where I'm at. And so I'm off the hook. I think there's more to it than that. I think when you read scripture, there are at least three reasons why God cares for people, humans that are outside of his personality. I do think he has a great personality, very gracious and kind. But on top of that, he also has very logical, factual reasons to care for people. Like the first one is that they were made. Humans were made. They were created in God's image. It is a cornerstone belief for Orthodox Christians that we believe that humans were created in his image. They are unique and special, all of them, all of us. And so by the very reality, they have value. All people do. So if a person has no money in their bank account, they are still valuable. A Rembrandt painting is valuable because Rembrandt painted it. Because he's the one who made that thing. And so by virtue of you being formed, created, made by God, you have value. All people do. Matthew 10, 29 through 31, which by the way is in the New Testament says, aren't two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them falls to the ground without your father's consent. But even the hairs of your head have all been counted. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than any sparrows. All humanity has been made, but it's not just that humanity has been made. It has also been designed, made for a purpose. See, in our culture, we think we end up accepting the idea that you are to pursue, you are to find your worth and your value in fame, beauty, athletic or physical ability, or how much money you can acquire. And all of those things have value. They do. And they are good in certain settings and good in certain um, exercises of them. However, they are not the thing. They are not the greatest purpose in our lives. We were created, all people were formed to bring glory to God, to glorify God and to be good to other people, to all of creation. That's what we were created to do. That's what we were formed to do. And by that standard, a child who can give you no money and can provide no skill can still fulfill what God created them to be by bringing glory to God and being good to other people. Someone posted this week, and maybe it was one of you, I just forget, it was on Facebook. They posted this image of uh, this ornate looking 
a thing. It was like a stabby thing. And I thought, I thought it was a letter opener, all right? And they asked, does anybody know what this is? And the, there was all these like suggestions on there. Somebody said it, it could be an ice pick. That, that looks, it could look like an ice pick. It could um, look like a letter opener. That's what I thought it was. And then somebody said, it's a tea stirrer. I didn't know that tea needed a specific stirrer, but, uh, but apparently that's, that's what this person thought it was, you know? And nobody really knew. And what it dawned on me, or at least the thought that I had, was this very ornate, pretty instrument was valueless if we don't know what it's for, right? Looking neat was worthless. It looked neat. It just didn't do anything. And so it had no value. Listen, humanity has a purpose. You individually have a purpose. You were not only made, you were designed. And there's a huge difference in that. You were designed. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 13 says, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God and keep his commands. That would be like saying for his glory and their good because this is for all humanity. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Not only were you made, you were designed and you are known. God knows each of you. God knows each of them. So the person on the street corner, the individual whom is either irritating you or makes you uncomfortable, they have a name, they have a story, they have a past, they have fears and insecurities, they have a sense of humor, they have skills, they have uh, quirks to them and the way they like to tell jokes. They have the ability to sing, some good and some not. And if you knew that, if you knew those things about that person, it would drastically change the way that you feel about that person and the way that you are around that person, right? God knows all of those things about that person. Every one of them, he knows those things. He knows all of those things about you. So this is not just that God is that way. God just likes people. God does, I think he does. But also he knows that you were made, fashioned for a purpose, and that you are unique and he knows you. Job 34 verse 21 says, for the eyes watch, for his eyes watch over a man's ways and he observes all of his steps. God knows you. He knows you, he values you. I have a friend, he's a pastor down in Houston. His name is Jarrett. And he preached a, a similar topic last week. And his church shared a video after I had written this. His church shared a video of a, a, like a quote of him preaching. And I thought about reading it to you, but then I thought, no, nah, we have like technology and stuff. So I thought I would just show you. So I asked Jared, y'all watch this video. So I want you to put this all together. The fact that God loves you, knows you, created you. I want you to put it all together. These are no brainers. There, there's nothing vague about this. These are absolute certainties. When we read scripture, and I want you to follow this train of thought. If this is true, biblically, and it is, God loves you, created you, knows you, then this means that you have value. Our lives 
are infinitely valuable, not because of what we do or who we are in the sense of what our title is or the job that we have. We are infinitely valuable because we are created, known, and loved by God. It doesn't matter what anyone else thinks of us. It doesn't matter how we came into this world. It doesn't matter if our parents abandoned us, abused us, or neglected us. It doesn't matter what we contribute or have the capacity to contribute. When you look at another human being, no matter how small, no matter how weak, no matter how old, no matter how insignificant or repugnant they may be, no matter how uneducated or uncivilized, when you look at another human being, you are looking at someone who has value simply because they are a human that is created, known, and loved by God. It's Jarrett Stevens, pastor of Champion Forest in Houston, Texas. And sometimes people who don't go to our church, they'll say, hey, I heard your sermon. And I can always say, I always say, I know good preachers you can listen to if you want to. And Jarrett would be one of those, all right? And so if you're looking for some, if you're watching online and you're not connected to us, Jarrett's a way better preacher than me. So just go to championforest.whatever and uh, you'll find him down there. It's not just that God's personality, it's, there's realities to it. And it's not just in Amos, and it's repeated in Amos, but it's also all throughout the Old Testament. And it's in the New Testament as well, in the newer part of the Bible. And, and just a side note, that doesn't mean it's like updated part. It's all really, really good and equally valuable. But in the parts and the stories and the teaching of Jesus, Jesus talks about this very same idea and this very same concept. It's just, and he doesn't disregard the care for those who are poor and powerless, disenfranchised and disadvantaged. He, he actually fills it out greater, colors it in deeper and, and puts more meaning and substance, puts a weightier fact on it. Matthew 5, verse 3, at the beginning of his very famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirits. And it's not talking about they don't have any money to buy food. He's talking about those who recognize that they have a need for Jesus, that they have a need for God. In Matthew 19, 23 through 24, Jesus has this encounter with this guy that the Bible describes as a rich young ruler who loves his stuff more than he loves following God or following after God. And Jesus says, that's a, that's a bad place to be in. This is the same text that Jesus says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to gain access to heaven, meaning that you have to love God more. In, in Mark chapter 12, Jesus celebrated the sacrifice of a widow. She only gave a little bit, just a few coins. And what Jesus does is flips the whole thing on its head and says, it's not the amount, it's the sacrifice. In Matthew chapter 6, he tells a story to his uh, disciples about uh, storing up for yourself treasures in heaven, that that matters more than accomplishing and, and, and hoarding here on this earth. Make sure that you're worried more about that than you're worried about these things. In other ways, keep your priorities straight. So what is he saying? What does Jesus think about having a lot or needing a lot? Well, the idea is that you are, that you are in need for God and that only can be satisfied through God and not through financial capacity or security. It doesn't matter how much money you have, you still need Jesus. In other words, we are all spiritually poor and spiritually powerless. We are all in need of someone else to provide for what we need. And that while we may think that dollars and cents in a bank account are a worthy pursuit, 
What really matters is kindness and graciousness that we show to other people by being redeemed people who follow after Jesus. That you put your faith and your trust in Jesus and that you are kind and gracious to other people so that they will know and hear the gospel. So if I was to sum all of this up and give you a challenge, uh, leave something with you, here's what I would give you. See the powerless as human and all humans as powerless. We need to see people the way that God sees people. So what this means is that the person on the street corner is not a nuisance or an irritation to you. That the, 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 the kid at school who blurts out and has like uncontrollable body movements, that sort of stuff. The person who has cognitive disabilities, the person that may make you go slower, the person that is in your way, they are not an irritation. They have deep value. And we need to see people as the immensely valuable people that they are. And as a church, I wanna brag on you for a little bit because I think we do this largely. I really do. The Conway Ministry Center is a ministry for the poor and powerless here in our community and in our county. And it is a ministry that uh, helps those people. And it could not have gotten off the ground, in my belief, without Second Baptist Church, long before I was here. That it does what it does, largely because of Second Baptist Church. But just since I've been your pastor, Second has donated $220,000 to the Conway Ministry Center. Also, we are participating in the construction of a tiny home in, an, in, a, in, a, in a ministry that is called Hope Village. It is an actual roof and walls and security that we are giving to the homeless. And it is something that the members of our church and other people are working at and, and working towards. Our church has donated $55,000 towards uh, the building of this home, which will be enough to, to build this home. I heard this week about one of our small groups that challenged itself. The small group did this. None of the pastors or the ministers did this. The small group looked at one another and said, and this year, since we're celebrating our 100 year as a church, then let's celebrate by serving for 100 hours at the Conway Ministry Center. And to date, they're at 80 plus hours. That's one of you. It's not just us, it's you. You do these things. And I'm constantly amazed at not only the financial contributions because these things take money, but also that those of you who swing a hammer and sit on a board and donate a sleeping bag and show up to organize things, you do these things because we believe what it says, that God cares for other people and that he expects us to do the same. I wanna make sure though that we do not rest on our laurels thinking that we've done pretty good. That's some big money that we're over there giving and so we are pretty good in this and it is and it's great. But what I would encourage you to remember is it's not just the things that we do but that each individual is charged by God to be like God in this world, to care for other people. The other thing that I wanna caution against is that I am not loading you down with a burden that you cannot carry. I have said nothing about the global hunger epidemic. I have said nothing about the homelessness in other communities and that sort of stuff because sometimes it can be so overwhelming that some of us just feel like there's no place to start. And I can't find anything in scripture that tells any individual to take care of that whole big problem. But what I do find in scripture is that you do what you can, when you can, and you leave the rest to God. You do what you can, when you can, 
and you leave the rest to God. So we see the helpless as human, valuable, designed, known humans, but we also see all humans as helpless and in need of help spiritually. Those who need food, clothing, and shelter, and those who have more than enough stand on equal footing at the cross. They all, we all need God in our lives. We need Jesus like we need water, food, and love. And Jesus is the bread of life. He is the living water, and he is the friend that sticks closer than a brother. Jesus is the answer to the deeper and the more pressing issue. It is heartbreaking that people starve to death. It is unfathomable that people slip from this life into the next, never knowing Jesus, while people live all around them that do know Jesus. Know Jesus, trust Jesus, accept Jesus, and then share Jesus. If you're a parent, or if you one day will be, let me warn you about something, Um, and it sucks. Socks have this way of always being around. And I have three boys and they're right on that stage of being teenagers and there are just always socks everywhere. Inexplicably, there are socks in places and and I don't understand it and I don't understand what they are doing. But here this last weekend, Jackie was over in Memphis and she was teaching and and doing some women's Bible study sort of stuff. And so it was just me. And I I walked through the house and there it was, there was a sock. And And it was obviously a sock that had been worn. And then it was just laying there, not like it fell out of a basket or anything. It just, there's a sock right in between our kitchen and our living room. And I stood there and I stared at it for just a second, thinking to myself, what emergency happened in which this is the place that a sock needed to be removed and discarded? Like, like who was under attack? And they just, I got to get this off, you know, and like ran, you know. What is, why is there a sock in the kitchen, in the living room? There's no reason for a sock to be right here. And as I sat there and I pondered the deeper things of life, my boys are just walking around like they don't even see it. They didn't even see this sock. It's just sitting there. And to be honest with you, it is the only thing I could see was this giant sock. And so I picked it up and instantly regretted it because of how wet that sock was, you know. And I started to discipline and yell and lose my common sense, you know, that sort of stuff. Like, why is there a sock right here, you know? That sort of thing. And I think the sock is a lot like the needy in our community. It's a lot like the problems that we face. It's a lot like your lost friend or, or, or the people that have challenges in your life. The need is there. The need has always been there. We just don't see it. We're blind to it. We step over it and around it, thinking somebody else will pick it up. Dad will take care of it. And yet, I pray that today, our eyes would be open to, like the sock, we would see people the way that God sees people, and then we would do something about it. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.